Well, good morning. Just uh, one, uh, one other announcement before we uh, look at Leviticus 23. As uh, Pastor Leto likes to say, there seems to be something in the water in this area. And uh, it has struck again. Uh, there is great joy in announcing that uh, Victor and Lorato Mofokeng are expecting their second child. So we praise the Lord for that and so pray for mom and baby that the Lord would keep them. Well, we're going to be looking at the passage that was read, uh, Leviticus 23. It deals with the feasts. And so uh, we're going to jump straight in. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Leviticus 23. Verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And then the last verse as well tells us that these are the appointed feasts of the Lord. And so uh, right up front we see that these are appointed times that, Lord, that the Lord gave to Israel. They are sacred times. Uh, God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all things. We belong to Him. Uh, he commands us in every way, in every sphere of our life, including our time. And for the nation of Israel, He gave them special times, special convocations, special assemblies, special feasts, where they had to gather for specific reasons, and we'll look at some of those reasons. And I want to say up front that uh, every strong culture or strong tradition will have certain feasts, certain uh, events, annual events that they celebrate. You can think for yourself of any strong culture. The strength of that culture is often uh, seen through the, the feasts and the celebrations that they keep every year. Not to say that they're all godly or all correct. It's just the way God has made us that people need traditions to strengthen their culture, to give stability and security. Uh, it is not surprising that in the West, where we have moved to so much individualism, that there is so much insecurity, disorientation and alienation. People don't know where they belong. They don't know where they fit in. There has been a, a wholesale rejection of traditions uh, and that has brought this fragmentation of society. And so God gave Israel these, these festivals. Every year they had to keep these seven feasts. There were seven of them and they had to keep them. Uh, three of them, it was compulsory for all males to attend. That was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. They had to attend them. Uh, now for us, God has not given us seven feasts, but he has given us uh, Lord's Day. And it's important that we, we, we appreciate these traditions that God gives us. They give us stability. They give us the rhythms of life. It's often because we don't stop and enjoy these rhythms, that we don't fall into the sort of symphony that God has created, that we become stressed out, we become anxious. But God has created rhythm into life, hasn't he? Day and night. 
for us, the Lord's Day every week, communion on a regular basis. Uh, we, we see the seasons that is a gift from God to us, reminds us of his promises. Uh, and so let me right up front, as we look at these feasts, these uh, traditions that God gave Israel as they came out of Egypt. Remember, they were so inculcated by Egyptian false theology that uh, Aaron even builds golden calves. Uh, he takes the gods of Egypt and renames them and calls them Jehovah. And so the Lord has to, has to create a new culture for them. And God does that for, for us as his people. He gives us new traditions. He gives us the regular pattern of the Lord's Day. But let's look at these feasts. We see from verse 3, the first one before we get into the seven annual feasts is the, the weekly Sabbath. God gave Israel the weekly Sabbath. Exodus 16, it's the first thing that the Lord reintroduces as he brings the, the Israelites out of Egypt. He gives them rest. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. There was no rest. But Jesus says, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what a privilege. Our God gives us rest. Every week he gives us a time to rest and to worship him. Uh, now we're not going to spend much time on the Sabbath. That uh, is a bigger discussion. But it was a creation mandate, and we see that it continues today. That we are to rest one day in seven as God's people. And then we come to the feasts. And... Uh, they're really divided up into two sections. So they really follow the, the agricultural calendar of Israel. And so you have the spring feasts and the autumn feasts. And there were early rains in Israel and late rains. There were different harvest times for different, different produces. And so we see that uh, the first four are the spring feasts. That's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and weeks. Uh, Passover was around the time of the barley harvest, and the Feast of Weeks was around the time of the wheat harvest, and then when we come to the autumn festivals, we'll look at, look at them. So let's look at these first four, the spring feasts. Uh, the commentator Wenham notes this, he says, nowhere is the continuity between the Testaments so clear as in the calendar. Three of the principal Old Testament feasts were taken over directly by the Christian church. Passover became Good Friday, which we've recently celebrated. Good Friday is Passover. Uh, unleavened bread, Easter Sunday. And the Feast of Weeks is Pentecost. And so the church from very early on began to celebrate these festivals, took them over from the Jewish calendar. He says the three most significant events in Christ's redemptive ministry coincided with these festivals. So let's look at them. The first, first two are the Passover and unleavened bread. So uh, they became synonymous in, in the minds of God's people. So when you read in the Gospels, it'll even talk like that. It'll say the Passover, which is unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But uh, they are distinct. So look at verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And so 
Uh, you can see why in the, Jew, the minds of, the, of God's people, these two became really joined together, because they were. They were right next to each other, the 14th day, the 15th day, the Passover, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I thought the way that we would look at these seven feasts is, first of all, uh, why the Jews had to keep each feast. Okay, so what was the reason? Why did God give the feast to, to his people? And then secondly, how does this feast point us to Jesus? Paul writes to the Colossians, he says in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And that's referring to, to these feasts, these Sabbaths. These, there are special Sabbaths. So there was the ordinary weekly Sabbath, and then there were special Sabbaths. There's actually seven of them within these seven feasts. And so again, you see the number seven is prominent, and you know that the number seven means completion of wholeness. And so Paul is saying, yeah, look, don't let anyone judge you with respect to these things. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so uh, we always want to see how does this show us more of Christ. And then thirdly, what does it mean for us? What is the takeaway for us? What is the application for us as we live in the 21st century in Johannesburg? Okay, so let's look at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why did Israel have to keep it? This one is quite straightforward. Uh, Book of Exodus tells us, Exodus 12 verse 26 The Lord says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? So the children actually would come and say, look, why are we doing this? Why are we keeping the Passover? What's going on here? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so we're told why they had to remember this this feast. Uh, If you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, God's people were uh, enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them through these powerful plagues. But the last plague, the tenth plague, was the death of the firstborn. And only through the death of an innocent lamb and and the taking of its blood uh, with a hyssop branch and painting it over the door lintels, Uh, Would the angel of death pass over that house? Remember that the firstborn was forfeited. Every firstborn was forfeited, belonging to God, because of our sin. In fact, in the law, you had to redeem the firstborn child. You had to buy that firstborn child back. And so, because of their sin, Egypt was judged. And any Israelite who didn't, sacrifice an animal and paint the blood onto the doorpost would also experience judgment. And so they were to remember this great deliverance when God delivered them with a mighty outstretched hand, judging their enemies. And remember, it was an act of righteous judgment. Because Exodus begins, we're told, with Pharaoh killing the firstborn, killing all the male children. Remember that? Exodus was killing the firstborn and the male children of Israel. And so God, the law of retaliation, God is always just. He, he brings that upon the nation of Egypt and 
delivers his people. And so they were to remember this every year. It is the paradigmatic picture of redemption in the Old Testament. The exodus. Delivery from slavery. Now how does it point us to Christ? Well, it's so rich. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, Christ is the firstborn, isn't he? Firstborn son. Never ever sinned. Didn't deserve to die. And yet he laid down his life. He is judged in our place. Judgment can pass over you and me if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ as you're sitting here, then you will bear the consequences for your own sins. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't need to. If you come to Christ... If you turn from your sins, acknowledge your sins, put your trust in Him, then you'll know His forgiveness. But He bore the price. The judgment fell upon Him. He died in the place of His people. Now all of these feasts, it, it's, some of the feasts are mentioned, well all of them are mentioned elsewhere in different places, in Numbers and Exodus, and so we try and piece it all together. But Numbers chapter 9 says something interesting about uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and and Passover. It says they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. So when they sacrificed the lamb, they were not to break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. And when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that John picks up on this in John chapter 19. Uh, When Jesus was crucified, remember he was crucified alongside two others. And uh, the Romans were experts at crucifixion. And the way a person died was, uh, was through drowning, really. They were not able to breathe properly. So you can imagine you're stretched out on this cross, your, your feet are nailed to the cross, and then your hands as well, and your nerves end in your hands and feet, incredibly painful. And so to breathe, you have to lift yourself up. And every time they lifted themselves up, they would have to put pressure on those points. And uh, pain would shoot through their whole body, creating spasms, and so... Uh, That's where we get the word excruciating from. Excruciating pain. Out of the cross pain. And so in order to try and reduce the pain, you would take shallower breaths. Which means you're not exhaling properly. And slowly your lungs start to fill with water. And eventually you would really drown. That's why it would take several days. It was was such an inhumane form of punishment. It was intended to, to produce the most pain and shame. And so it would take several days for a person to to die. On this occasion, they had to hurry the the whole thing up. So what they would do is they would come with a hammer and smash the shins of whoever's been crucified. Break the legs so that you could no longer lift yourself up. So you would die more quickly. But remember, when they came to Jesus, he had already died. Remember, no man took his life from him, but he freely gave it up. And so this is what the scriptures say. Verse 36, John 19. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
And again, in other scriptures, they, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They pierce his side. You see, Christ is the Passover lamb. That was a shadow. Christ is the fulfillment. Well, what does it mean for us? If you're in Christ, it means you're forgiven. Judgment has passed over you. God chastens us, but actual judgment, eternal damnation, you will never ever experience. You will never drink of that cup because Christ drank of it completely. What else does it point us to? It points us to communion, which we will we'll look at a bit later on when we have communion. Uh, but it also points to something more than that because you're, you will, if you were listening when uh, Brother Ponso read, they had to eat, well, even the feast is unleavened bread. They had to eat all this bread that was without yeast, unleavened. Okay, so thin wafers, matzos. Paul, you picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good to the, to the Corinthians. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little yeast leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the old yeast, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in the Bible, leaven often speaks of sin. Not always, but I would say predominantly, it speaks of sin. This yeast, you, you understand yeast uh, spreads throughout the dough and affects all, you know, every part of the dough. That's the idea with sin. It's, it's contagious, it's infectious, it affects every part of us. You can't segregate it. You can't say, no, well, like, you know, there's just this separate sin that I do, but the rest of me is fine. No, it contaminates every part of us. And so Paul says, look, you need to get rid of that leaven. As the children of Israel had to eat unleavened bread, symbolizing that they needed to be different. They needed to be holy, as we've seen throughout Leviticus. So for us, the coming of Christ means we are to be holy. We are to be different. Get rid of the malice and evil, the anger and the bitterness. Replace it with sincerity and truth, Paul says. Be sincere. Speak the truth in love. Then we come to the feast of first fruits. It's in verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So this feast also occurred at the same time as the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Notice it says there on the day after the Sabbath. So remember the Jewish Sabbath was a Saturday. So Passover occurs on the Friday. There's the Sabbath. And then the day after the Saturday is the Sunday. That was the Feast of First Fruits. Only once they had entered the land and they'd been able to plant crops and reap the harvest. So they didn't keep this feast for a few years, 40 years, until they went into the land and were able to reap a harvest. And this was their, the first harvest, their barley harvest. 
And so Israel had to keep it. Uh, they have their barley harvest, and it's a feast of first fruits. The idea here is, as the name suggests, first fruits. So if, you, if you're a farmer and you've, you've planted your crops and they're starting to grow, we have, we don't, I don't have crops, but we have fruit trees <laughs> outside our house. And um, it's always exciting when you see the, you know, the blossoms and then you start to see the little fruit appearing. At least in our family, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, especially the mulberries, when the mulberries come. But we have some of these fruit trees, and then you start to see the first fruits, okay? The first fruits that are ripe. That's the idea here. The first shoots of barley, okay? And they had to take that and give it to the Lord. Now, you need to understand, remember, we said this often in agrarian culture, so they're living from hand to mouth, they don't have investments in the bank or anything like that. There's, there's no such thing. They, they, they live off the land, literally. Uh, and so when they, when they see the crop coming, and then the Lord says, I want you to take the, the, the first fruits and give it to me. What an act of trust. They don't know if tomorrow there's a hailstorm and it's all gone and all they could get was the first fruits. They have to trust God and say, I'm going to take that. And I'm going to give it to the Lord with confidence that the rest will come. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to give you the first fruits, the best. And trust that you will provide for me. And so this harvest, this feast was an act of trust in the Lord. They were to trust God and give the first fruits to the Lord. And trust that he would provide for them. And so the first fruits are the expectation that more will come. Well, how does that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, well, remember what I said earlier, that it's actually, the, the scriptures say, verse 11, on the day after the Sabbath, on the Sunday. One of the interesting things about these feasts are that the focus on Sundays uh, the, the eighth day of the week, okay? the day after the Sabbath. Those are all Sundays. This is sort of preparatory for the New Testament church where they begin to meet on the eighth day of the week, where they begin to meet on the Sunday. Already in these feasts, there was that preparation. And so what happens on that Sunday after the Passover? The resurrection, isn't that right? Jesus Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday. Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And so he is the first fruit. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Jesus Christ is the first one to rise from the dead. He is the first man to conquer death. Hell in the grave. And he rose from the dead, the first fruit. What that means is more is coming. There will be more people who will get a, re a resurrected body, a glorified body, who will conquer death. Okay. And so it points us, the application for us is what Christ has accomplished points us to the resurrection, the hope that we have. How do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know that, that, 
you're going to be raised from the dead, will you remember Christ? That he conquered death. He rose from the dead. He is the first fruit. More is coming. And so you and I, we don't have to live with the fear of death. The writer of Hebrews speaks about those who all their lifetime were held in bondage through their fear of death. I'm not saying, you know, if you have any fear that you're sinning. I mean, I think it was Spurgeon who said, you know, it doesn't mean you, you, you shouldn't fear how you die. There's certain ways I, I wouldn't like to die. But actually death itself is an opening to glory, isn't that right? In fact, that's why the scripture Paul even uses this phrase, they've fallen asleep. When it speaks of God's people now, those who are in him, it, it uses this euphemism, we fall asleep. When it speaks of Christ, it says he died because he experienced separation from the Father. In his humanity, he was separated from all the gracious attributes of the Father except his wrath and justice. And so we fall asleep. We open our eyes in, in glory. So we don't need to live with fear. We don't need to be enslaved. It doesn't mean we are foolish. But we don't need to be paranoid. It's a lack of trust in God. The worst thing that can happen to us, humanly speaking, is death. And you know what? That's simply a doorway into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The next feast is the Feast of Weeks. We know it as Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Verse 15 says, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the seventh Sabbath. So that's where it comes from. 50 uh, Pentecost, that's the Greek word for 50. So that's where we get the name from. Okay? It's 50 days later. So after the, the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, 50 days later, uh, the seventh Sabbath, the day after. So remember, a Sabbath is a Saturday. The day after is a Sunday. So again, we've been told here, this feast is a Sunday. What happened at Pentecost? Well, the Holy Spirit was given on a Sunday. Again, you can see why the early church picked up on the importance of a Sunday and the shift to mark a shift from Judaism. Began to worship on a Sunday. Now, there were certain things they had to do. They had to bring a lot. It was a lot more giving. It was uh, a, a, a lot of things that they had to bring and sacrifice to the Lord. A whole lot of animals and uh, flour and all sorts of things that they had to bring to the Lord. And the idea here was to give thanks for what he had done for them. Why did Israel have to keep it? Because they had to praise God for his provision. This was the end of the harvest period. So first fruits was saying, Lord, we expect a full harvest. Pentecost was saying, thank you, Lord, for a full harvest. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for looking after us. And over time... It also became synonymous with the giving of the law. Okay, so, so for Jews, even today, Orthodox Jews, it's synonymous with the giving of the law. They did happen at the same time. We know that from the calendar, that God, the giving of the law was 
around that time. And so it pointed to that, to thanksgiving for, Lord, you gave us your good law. What else did they have to do? Well, they had to give a lot, and a lot of that was then given towards the priests. They had to care for the priests. Remember, the priests survived off the goodness of the people. And then look at verse 22. This is part of the Pentecost. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So part of Pentecost was also caring for the poor. Well, how does it point us to Jesus? Well, we've been going through the book of Acts. Um, And in your Bibles, the heading will say the Acts of the Apostles. Some commentators say it's better described as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because as as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see the Holy Spirit is at work, of course. But some have said it's even better described as the acts of the resurrected Christ. And those of you who were here in Bible Hour, as you studied the Holy Spirit, you, you heard that it is the Son who sent the Holy Spirit to work. And he continues to work. Some have called this period now Acts 29. The Holy Spirit continues to work under the the authority of the resurrected Christ, under the authority of Jesus Christ. Christ is still working by His Spirit. He promised to send His Spirit. And so Pentecost is is seeing Christ in His, as He's ascended into heaven, he, He sends the Holy Spirit. He fills His church with the Holy Spirit. That we can go out now and serve. And that applies to us now. We have the Holy Spirit. We are set apart you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's why we are to be holy. We are to be different. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. When you sin, remember Paul says this, especially with sexual sin. You're taking your body, it's a temple of the Lord, and you're making him a partaker of your sin. You belong to Christ. You have his Spirit within you. Part of sanctification now is we're also to, like they were, to provide for those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul says that. If you're not giving towards God's work, if you're just a a consumer, you're sinning. You're not being sanctified. If you're not caring for the poor amongst us, if you're not giving to, to, to the care of those in in the local community, and then as if God gives you more that you can care for others, that also means you're, you're not growing in holiness. That was all part of Pentecost. And you can even see that in the early church. These are things that they had to deal with. How do they care for the, the widows? Well, that's the spring feasts. And that brings us to the autumn feasts now. There were three of them. Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, uh, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or ingathering. These all occur within the seventh month. It's the most holy month in the Jewish calendar. So all three of these occur in one month. The 
first one, the Feast of Trumpets. Look at verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So why did Israel have to keep this feast? Uh, This one's tricky because we're not given a passage that tells us why. They had to blow these trumpets or shofars, uh, but it's not really linked to anything directly. It's not saying because of this or because of that. So we have to try and sort of read between the lines and see, okay, in what other situations were trumpets used? Uh, And what you find is that Trumpets are used when, when they go to war. So, um, think of Jericho. Remember they marched around the city of Jericho and then on the, the last day, they blew the trumpets and the walls were brought down. So they were, they, were, they were blown at that time. And that also links with the other time they are used with judgment, Fear and judgment. So when the law is given at Mount Sinai, we're told that trumpets are blaring. Remember, it's a frightening thing. The people just touched the mountain and God killed them. The law came to show sin. Trumpets are blaring from the mountain. And that fits with war as well. Because remember, when Israel went to war, it was an act of judgment on God's enemies. So it seems to be that you link these things together. It seems to be judgment and repentance and, sort of, and war linked to judgment. And so I think uh, that's um, a helpful way to look at it. It was a reminder for God's people to, to, to examine themselves. To remember God's judgment. To remember that God judges sin and to repent. It was a sober time. When we come to the the New Testament, how does it point us to Jesus? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, the the passage about the resurrection and our glorified bodies, uh, Paul says this, he says, We shall not, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, that, that means die, But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. So when we come to the New Testament, and you can look at Revelation as well, trumpets point us to Christ's second coming. He's going to come again. Come again. The Lord Jesus Christ came first as a lamb. He will come again as a lion. He came in on a donkey. He will come on a, on a horse. He came in weakness. He will come in power and majesty. Now you're saying, well, this doesn't seem like judgment because it's all about joy. But remember, in the Bible, the day of the Lord, that final day of the Lord, capital D, day of the Lord, when he returns, the end of the world, 
It's great joy for God's people. But if you're not in Christ, it is a day of judgment and horror and fear. Think of it like this. Uh, if If your car has been stolen... Uh, and then you you know you see the police coming around the corner. You are glad to see the police because you say, "Hey, they just took my car. Can you chase after them?" If you're the guy stealing the car, you're not so happy to see the police. Okay. You see, your your relationship to the judge uh, is determined by which side you're, you're standing on. If you're right with God, if you're in Christ. What a hope. What a, what a, we're longing. Remember how the scriptures end. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. You want him to come. Lord, please come. I wipe away these tears. Make everything right. Bring an end to injustice and sin and, and all the vileness and debauchery and ugliness. And the death and sickness and poverty. Bring an end to it. But you see, if you're not right with God, if if you're living in sin, well, then it's a frightening thing. You're on the wrong side of the law. And so, I think that's a good barometer. If you can examine yourself, do you look forward to the return of the Lord? Or are you afraid of it? Are Are you ready to see God? Are you ready to stand in his presence or not? And so the challenge to us is to repent, be ready, make sure you're in Christ. And for God's people, uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians, encourage one another with these words. So we should encourage one another with the return of Christ, the hope that we have. When you are discouraged, when you have despair and you're heartbroken, whatever trial you're going through, It's an encouragement to know it's not going to be like this always. Evil will not have the final word. Brokenness will not have the final word. Christ will have the final word. And so encourage one another with these words. He's coming back again. The Day of Atonement, I'm not going to spend any time on that. We did that on Good Friday. You can listen to that sermon, Leviticus 16. The next... And final feast is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Tents. Look at verse 39. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths or tents. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
And so we're told there why Israel had to keep it. They had to remember their deliverance from Egypt. And while they were in the wilderness, they lived in these, these tents. They had to make these uh, sort of Bear grills type uh, places of living. They had to take branches and, uh, and, and live in these, these tents. And so they were to be reminded of that time. And so they were to remember God's deliverance. They were to remember his provision. In Exodus, this is also called a feast of ingathering. So it can be confusing. Feast of booths, tabernacles, or ingathering. It's the same feast. Feast of ingathering was the final harvest of the year was the the grape harvest. A time of joy. Okay, so grapes God gave to make wine. And remember, the psalmist tells us God gave wine to make the heart glad. It was a time of joy. I don't know if you picked it up throughout that passage that I read. Celebrate is mentioned over and over again. Rejoice. It's the only festival where they're told to rejoice. Uh, Josephus says this was the most important feast in the Jewish calendar. Interesting. It's the feast we don't really think about much. We think, obviously, far more on Passover and Pentecost. But in the Jewish mind, this was the most important feast. A time of rejoicing, a time of joy. It was the longest and most important festival. Over time, the Jews began to add certain things to their celebration. They added lights and the singing of certain psalms. The psalms of ascent and the Hallel psalms, the Egyptian Hallel psalms. An elaborate water-pouring ceremony is based, uh, on se- based on several prophetic passages was added. So when they celebrated this, this feast, uh, they added extra things. They would pour water out. And so they began to look forward, not just looking back to what God had done for them, delivering them out of Egypt, providing for them, but it began to look forward to the hope that they had. The hope of, of a God who would provide for them perfectly, a God who would bring bring safety and security, bring everything they longed for. You see that even in the idea of a tent, a place, a home, a place where you belong. Zechariah 14 speaks about the Feast of Booths in connection with the final kingdom. One author said this, one commentator said this, ultimately this feast points to hope in the kingdom of God. This is how it points to Jesus. The people of Israel thought this would be fulfilled in Jesus in an earthly sense. Because of this, they welcomed him in his triumphal entry. Remember when Jesus enters Jerusalem? What are they waving? They're waving all these palm branches. They're actually uh, enacting the festival of booths. They thought Jesus, the Messiah, would now come and fulfill all of these things. He's going to liberate us from the Romans. He's going to give every person their own piece of land and their own home and their own crops. He's going to bring in the messianic kingdom in its fullness. And that's why they were celebrating like that. The imagery is taken from the the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. The commentator says, But they had mistaken the timing of his reign. He had not yet come to rule, but to die. The Feast of Booths signifies the reigning of Christ after his crucifixion, causing us to rejoice in the hope that is yet to come. And so it looked forward to the 
the new heaven and the, the new earth. John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus actually went to Jerusalem at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. He went in secret because they were, they were seeking to kill him. But then at a certain point on the final day, he stands up in the temple when they're doing this, this elaborate water pouring ceremony. Jesus stands up, John 7 verse 37, and he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so Jesus stands up during this feast and says, I'm the fulfillment of this feast. Exactly as Paul said, the substance is Christ. Come to him for satisfaction. Now, what does it mean for us? Well, come to him for satisfaction. But also that he is coming again. Christ has come. He is ruling and reigning. The kingdom has come, but not in its fullness yet. He is coming again to bring his kingdom perfectly. No more death, no more suffering, no more sickness. Our deliverance will be complete. As I studied all these feasts, and it's been a, a, a privilege to do that, I must say, uh, they're so rich, pointing to Christ. But I really think you can reduce them to sort of... uh, uh, I'm sure you picked up there's a lot of overlap. They're either remembering uh, sacrifice, atonement for sin, judgment on Christ. So they're looking back to what Christ has done. And they also point us to sanctification. We now have the Holy Spirit. We are to be a holy people. We are to be a kind people. We are to be a people who speak the truth in love. And they also look forward to the final kingdom. We don't need to fear death. And so you could say this. They cover these three aspects. Justification. What Christ accomplished at the cross. If you're a Christian and you're in Christ, you are justified. You are declared righteous. But the feasts also cover sanctification. That during this period we are to be growing in holiness. And then they look forward to our glorification. The time is coming when the Lord will return. We will receive glorified bodies and enjoy the new heaven and new earth forever. Now the Lord has only given us one one command, one feast, if I can put it that way. That's the Lord's Supper. That's the only one that He has given us. He has not given the New Testament church seven feasts. But if you, if you think of the Lord's Supper, it has all three of those. We are to remember Christ, what He has done, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. We look backwards. But we also look forward, don't we? We proclaim His death until He comes. And so the hope that he is coming again, we look forward to that, to the new heaven and new earth. But right now he is working as we partake of the Lord's Supper by faith. You're a Christian. As you eat and drink by faith, you are being fed spiritually now. You are being strengthened inside to grow in holiness. Remember, sanctification doesn't happen on Monday. We tend to think like that. 
Sanctification should be happening right now as you see Christ in the sermon, in the singing, in these feasts, that you are changed from one degree of glory to another. As you partake of Him in communion, you are growing in holiness as you eat and drink by faith. We have the privilege of enjoying communion now. Let Let me pray for us before we enjoy that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage, so rich. Uh, We've really rushed through all of this material. Uh, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would still minister to every heart, that even though there's been a lot of information, that each person would see Christ, that you would work in a wonderful way. Whatever sphere each person needs, to be confronted about whether it's justification if anyone here is not saved. They're still in their sins, afraid of death and judgment, rightfully so. That today would be the day that they know your grace and your forgiveness. They know eternal life. For those of your children who are dabbling in sin, who are drifting, whose consciences are being seared, that they would be convicted that they are to be a holy people, separate, different. For those who are discouraged and downcast, overwhelmed with the brokenness of life in this world, feeling hopeless, that they would be encouraged as they look forward see the hope of the resurrection. We know that we will have glorified bodies one day because Christ is the first fruit. We know that you will make all things right. We have a glorious hope. And so, Holy Spirit, please encourage those who are downcast. We ask all these things in your wonderful name. Amen.